I think a writer will never be a good writer if, if he's not on speaking terms with himself. But getting on speaking terms with yourself is not an easy thing. And in writing, you try to find this. So I don't think that you are a priori on speaking terms with yourself when you start writing. But you start writing because you're not on speaking terms with a certain problem. Welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Today we are on a trip. You can come with us to London Book Fair. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I packed my bag, put it over my shoulder, and I went off to the west of London, where once a year the world gathers in London at London Book Fair to talk about books. There are readers there, industry professionals, authors, agents, people selling rights, people teaching coding, making book apps, everything. I'm lucky enough to go to London Book Fair every year and every year it gives me a little chance to reflect on what books mean to me and how we can do them better in the future. Um, so I cornered four authors to put together a little episode for you so you can feel like you're coming with me on this journey meeting these authors at this incredible fair. I wanted to ask how and why stories remain significant, what authors owe to their stories and what we all owe to the legacy of books. I chatted to Carol Phillips, Ian McEwan, Intan Paramedita and Stefan Hurtmans to talk about their own experiences of reading and finding their voice to tell their own stories. So first on the list, we did a bit of a live interview with Ian McEwan at the fair. I wanted to ask him what the canon means to him, why our urge to interact with past narratives is interesting, and what gave him the urge to share his own voice. So here's Ian McEwan. Well, I think literary traditions are very, very important, but it's also extremely important to keep redefining them and, and in my life, um, the literary canon was just um, an endless succession of, of men uh, with you know, a, a few peaks of you know, Virginia Woolf or maybe Afro Ben. Uh, so you want a tradition. Uh, it should be said also at the personal level, nearly every writer, every published writer was once and still is an enthusiastic reader. So it's not for nothing that many writers have at their back somewhere a, a literature degree or, a, or at the very least, a, a powerful involvement with reading. Um, my sense of this is that the totality of all the books you've read, and especially the books you've loved, add, adds up to your mental furniture. I mean, it becomes part of who you are and it's sort of inescapable. I mean, I, if I've referred to Jane Austen, it's because it's part of now, of, it's just in my bloodstream. Mm. Uh, a lot of poetry, too, uh, it, it informs uh, my own written prose. Sometimes I'm writing, and I write a sentence and think, well, that's familiar, and I realize that I've, no one else would see it, but it's a line from Philip Larkin, which I've completely changed. The subject is entirely different, but the cadence yeah. is the same. Uh, and in fact, I think there's a PhD thesis to be written on uh, the influence of Philip Larkin on, on prose, written pro literary prose in Britain. But I think uh, you know, at the age of 17, 18, I read T.S. Eliot's great essay on uh, the literary tradition. Uh, that informed my sense of its value. 
when I was a second year undergraduate, uh, thinking that rather gloomily that I could the only future I could see for myself was becoming a teacher of English literature at a university. Uh, and then I suddenly realized that literature was a kind of ongoing conversation through the centuries and that anyone could join in. Anyone who wanted to can join in. Whether they get heard or not is you know, another matter. But you could join it. And so after reading people out of my tradition, Kafka, Bruno Schultz, uh, Thomas Mann, uh, and then coming back to English and British literature, I had a very powerful sense that I could start writing myself. So at the age of 20, 21, I wrote my first published story with very much that sense of the, that I was piping up. My own tiny voice was joining in. Um, I felt like a sort of three-year-old who stumbles into a cocktail party and there are these sort of people the size of redwood trees holding drinks a you know, hundred feet above your head. Uh, and no one was going to notice you, but you, know, yeah. you can join in. My chat with Ian interestingly linked to the chat I had with Intan. She's the author of a short story collection called Apple and Knife, which are dark feminist retellings of fairy tales and lots of other sharp kind of horror genre literature. It's a, it's a really incredible collection if you get your hands on it. Um, but I talked to her about using the canon to comment and unpick the past. Intan grew up in Indonesia. For her, books were an opportunity for exploration in a childhood that was filled with restriction and scarcity. She told us a bit about that and, and also why she chose to draw from folklore as an act of feminist protest. Here's Intan. Growing up in Indonesia um, in the late 80s, early 90s, that was kind of weird because we didn't have much entertainment. Um, there was this one television station, the television of um, Indonesian Republic, which was mainly about government propaganda. Mm. Um, and other than that, we would just, you know, play outside or we would read books. Um, and books really um, offered us um, opportunities to explore the world where, um, you know, we, we didn't have satellite TV. Well, satellite TV came in um, in, the, in the early 90s mm -hmm. and we were exposed to so many cultures. But back then it was quite limited to print culture um, and TV, right? mm. um, but TV was limited. So books were our sav savior, I would say. And, and also, uh, but at the same time, I feel like I was a priv privileged child because my mother bought me a lot of books. And I know that a lot of um, Indonesian kids did not have this privilege. I mean, my books, um, I had so many books when I was a child, like um, everything from Hans Christian Andersen to Brothers Grimm and Enid Blyton, and also in, you know, books about uh, Indonesian um, um, uh, legends. Um, so I was really exposed to stories. But I know that for some kids, they had to go like four miles to local uh, li lo libraries in the village and they, mm. they would um, uh, read books in the libraries or they would rent books. Um, yeah, so it's kind of interesting, you know, thinking about books as something that you can, yeah, that's easily providing you information. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, it's, it's got layers to it. Nuanced, like that. Yeah. yeah, I would, I would mm. say that I was privileged as a child. Um, your stories play with with this idea of folklore and fairy tale and and myths, and you know, they they there is stuff in there that's really recognisable to all of us, but some of it's you know also so you mm. know shocking and, and new. Um, why did you make the choice to kind of um like draw from fairy tales and folklore um to to write this kind of really new, fresh material? Hmm. I guess because um, women in fairy tales, um, they have limited options. Um, I guess, yeah, that's the main point. Because I really love fairy tales. They're very, they could be really wild. They could be really um, 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 horrific. Mm. And and I I just love uh, weird stories. They could be really weird. Um, But the problem is... um, the options for women are kind of limited to um, either you are a good girl and you are saved by a handsome uh, prince and you end up in a heterosexual romance um, or you um, envy, you, you are angry at the world for, um, um, you know, for uh, a being too, for instance, being too ambitious or being too... Uh, powerful you're you're just angry and then you are being punished for being uh, angry Mm. um, and you end up um, in death or in whatever horrible punishment (laughs) available Um, so uh, I guess in Indonesia as well as in you know sort of uh, um, familiar uh, Western fairy tales I I see this kind of patterns um, and I'm interested in um, in talking about all these monstrous women, evil women in fairy tales, um, and si- resituating them in the more modern context, and so sort of um, trying to find similarities um, across cultures. Yeah. So we have, you know, our own version of of witches, and um, they're of course they're distinctively Indonesian or distinctively, I would say, Javanese or Balinese. Mm. Um, but there are some similarities as well in terms of that they are angry, and then they, you know, they don't have infrastructure to channel their, in a way, protests. Yeah. Right. Um, so they become this demonic figures. They just. Mm. Um, become monstrous and they conduct violence. But I think it's important to ask questions. Why are these women so violent? And why are they like terrorizing the village, for instance? (laughs) Um, It's really about that question. What happens to them? What what kind of structure allows this, this kind of monstrosity? Yeah, and then yeah. looking looking back at it with a different lens and being like, hang on. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. think that woman, you know, that could have easily been us. Next, I spoke to Carol Phillips. He writes fiction and nonfiction, which is quite rare for an author. So I thought that was really interesting to chat to him about. Um, in this chat, he looks back on his own writing about the stories we tell ourselves. And we talk about who books belong to. Uh, but first, I asked him whether he prefers writing fiction or nonfiction. I've loved a lot of your fiction and nonfiction. Um, I wondered if, if you had a preference, or do they do they speak to each other? Like, what do you what do you find easier to write, and or, or what comes more naturally to you? Well, it, I mean, it's it's all hard to be to be perfectly frank with you. It's all difficult. But I mean, the problem with nonfiction, for me, is always where to put the personal pronoun. 
I mean, I don't want to be in it. So yeah. if you're writing a non-fiction piece, where do you put I? You know, I got off the train and I looked around and it was a cloudy day and then I, I don't want to be reading that. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to find fictional techniques to write non-fiction with. So I will sometimes jump to the second person, which is, you know, the easiest trick in the world. He got off the train mm. and he looked around. So it's non-fiction, but it's non-fiction masquerading as fiction. Yeah. So I find them both difficult, but non-fiction has that problem of visibility because I don't really want to be visible. And in fiction, of course, I'm not visible. Mm. I'm off stage somewhere and the other characters are speaking. So that's the, that's the difficulty that comes with non-fiction to me, is how to hide, but at the same time be present. Yeah, and I suppose then it's the kind of dynamic of honesty there, because can you be more honest in fiction sometimes because you're not claiming the, you know, the truth is your own? It's, it's interesting mm -hmm. to think about. Um, it was, was it about 30 years ago you wrote um, The European Tribe? I did the traveling for it, in 1984, mm. um, when I was six. <laughs> no, was, no, I did the traveling in 1984, so it's 35 yeah. years, but the book was published in 1987. So. Yeah, and for those of you who don't know about it, it's, it's, it traces this, this kind of mm. journey through Europe and talks about um, like people's obsession with Eurocentric history. Do you, do you look back at that book and, and think, oh, things have really changed since then, or actually do you feel like you could have written it now? How do you feel about that? Um, well, I think the conclusion, if you like, the, the feelings about Europe are the same. Um, obviously, a lot of things have changed. I mean, at the time I was traveling, I was, there was an Iron Curtain, so I spent time in East Germany when there was an East Germany. I spent time in the Soviet Union when there was a Soviet Union. So physically, Europe has changed. Um, the journey would be different now, um, just purely in terms of visas and internet. There was no internet. Um, but the conclusions would be the same about, you know, European self-delusion, um, which we're smack bang in the middle of now with the whole Brexit debate, you know. So I don't think that much has changed. You asked me if I looked back at it, but the thing is, I never look back because uh, I can't do anything about it. <laughs> so you've yeah, just got to keep looking. It is what it is. You know, once a book is published, it's no longer yours. Yeah. It doesn't belong to me anymore. So if it's, the book is published, it's, uh, my relationship with that book is severed. Mm. I don't have anything to say about it because it doesn't belong to me. Um, it belongs to the reader if he or she is generous enough to read it. Their opinions are what count, not my opinions anymore. Yeah, we perhaps answered my next question then, but I was going to ask if you think that as, as an author you have a, have a duty to the reader in any way, or do you kind of just go and write, this is what I want to write, because you know, some people can write it from a, a, mm. an introspective place, and some people are really thinking about the audience, but perhaps it's this thing of you're thinking about the, you know, your, you know, your own things, and then when it's out in the world, it's for everyone else, but I wonder if you think about that when you're writing. Well, I, I mean, it sounds quite selfish, but I'll be honest with you, uh, I have no interest in thinking about what the reader 
might want when I'm writing. The person that I have to please is me. It has to make sense to me. Obviously, I'm interested in the reader in the sense that I want to choose the best words. I want to write sentences that have that rise and fall. Uh, I want images that would capture a reader's imagination. In that sense, I'm thinking of the reader because I'm trying to arrest their attention. But in terms of pleasure and in terms of the um, logic of the subject matter, and so I have to, I have to be doing something that it has coherence for me. Next, I spoke to Stefan Hertzman. We spoke about how he picks what truths to put in his work and how he weaves that truth into his writing. The moment you start imagining things, you fall back on what you've lived through. And so, even in your metaphors, in the allegory, in your narration, you will always fall back on things you know or remember so that crop up just in what you're writing. So it has always been a main problem to me. But what happened to me in the last books I've been writing, like War in Turpentine, which was based on the memoirs of my grandfather during the First World War in Flanders Field, or The Convert, which is going to appear in June, next June, based on a manuscript found in a small Provencal village wherever else, I was confronted with the question of how do you as a narrator make your coming out with the autobiographical fact that you've found documents that now you have to work into a novel which is also a documentary novel but also an autobiographical novel. So I came to tell myself because I, I, I did a lot of research and I felt from, you know, what is the objective thing in the novel, the fact, into the subjective thing, which is the experiences, this tension between experience and fact, this is what makes a good novel. And in those novels, and in the one I'm writing and working on now, again, there is always a tension between factual truth and veracity. And I think literature is about veracity in the first place. How do you translate facts and literal truth, so to speak, into veracity that the reader can be reached what you are telling in it? So you were asking me something about the main problem in literature, I guess. Yeah, I was supposed to say the yeah. fact versus truth, they're slightly different uh, concepts. Um, do you feel as an author you have a duty you know, to yourself, to the reader? Uh, to the world, do, do you do you feel like there's 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 um yeah is there something that drives your writing that's, that's to do with duty, or do you feel like actually you should just write for you and then later it's for yes everyone? yes I guess there is a dialectical movement so to speak between what you do for yourself as a writer and how you can mean something for the others, and maybe the the bottom line is you cannot be any good to the others if you're not good to yourself. That means be honest to yourself, be cruel to yourself, be critical to yourself, and have mercy on yourself at the same time. And if you, as an individual, you have your place in the collectivity, so to speak, in society, and literature is always about society and individuals, and this clash. And I think a writer will never be a good writer if, if he's not on speaking terms with himself. But getting on speaking terms with yourself is not an easy thing. And in writing, you try to find this. So I don't think that 
you are a priori on speaking terms with yourself when you start writing, but you start writing because you're not on speaking terms with a certain problem, and you try to solve it. So, mostly I say, writing a book is making a psychoanalysis on yourself and it's all free. <laughs> a bargain. But it's not easy. Yeah. To end the podcast, I thought I would play you a few more clips from my chats with Intan and Ian. Um, Intan um, had some really interesting things to say about the future of books and how perhaps we'll need stories in the future. Stories, um, I mean, they remain significant. I think we live in the world of um, audiovisual media, digital media, but it's really about storytelling. It's mm. about... Um, you know, now you have Facebook, <laughs> Instagram, and so on. But it's really going back to the idea about telling a story through various diff different platforms. Mm. So what um, people will pay attention to um, is the story, yeah. right? You can have images, nice images. You can have nice podcasts. But it, it is really about how that story is told and then what I think is important is um, paying attention to um, what story we should tell mm. I think that's that's a question that we should be asking all the time um, so for me I guess um, related to your second question about mm. uh, stories about dark women um, yeah, I, I keep asking myself what, what story matters. And I think uh, I've always been interested in stories about resistance. Um, mm -hmm. I call the collection Apple and Knife um, a book about disobedient women. Um, and of course, resistance can um, take many different forms, right? I'm, I mean, for someone like like you, for instance, you can express your resistance through so many different platforms. You are uh, very much social media savvy. <laughs> and then like for myself, I can write, I can, um, you know, use uh, writing to express mm. myself. But, n you know, for a lot of women, uh, resistance is, is, a, is a privilege, right? Yeah. So I, I'm interested in how um, resistance takes form um, in, in many different ways. And sometimes you can resist within a particular uh, structure, but sometimes, you know, this structure, order, they all fail you. And so you just need to, you know, disobey and you just need to create um, monstrous acts, perhaps. So, yeah, so yeah. I'm interested in stories about women who um, they want to escape the confinement of their lives and perhaps they just can't find a way out and they have to choose um, the unthinkable ways. So that's why a lot of um, stories in Apple and Knife uh, are about monstrous women. Yeah, that makes a lot. And finally, I'll leave you in the capable hands of Ian McEwan. Uh, I don't know if you've seen, but his new book, Machines Like Me, has just been released uh, this last week. Uh, so if you haven't picked up a copy yet, uh, you need to so we can talk about it. Here is Ian talking about our duty to books and each other as we face the future together. 
With, you know, we're thinking a lot, and I think London Book Fair is the time for us to sit back and think, right, you know, how do we, how do we interact with each other as an industry? How do we interact with the world? Do you think that as, as an author, you have a, a duty to, to the readers? And, and, and also, I suppose, do you think as, you know, publishers and, and libraries and booksellers, we also have a duty to, to the public? And what do you think that is? Well, um, I always fall back on that question uh, to a, a rather nomic line of Henry James. He said the first duty of a, of a novelist is to be interesting. Um, and, of course, that begs a million questions, especially for those who don't like the last three novels of Henry James, um, Golden Bowl, Ambassadors. Um, what are the duties of a novelist? I, to write well, I mean, yeah. and then let... I, the social responsibilities of novelists, I think, are for novelists to decide. And the hallmark of a free society is one that lets some novelists indulge themselves only with the private life and other novelists to be right at the forefront of political change. And that must remain a free choice. Look what happened in, to, to the Writers' Union in, in Soviet Russia, where social responsibility was the constant requirement of writers. It's absolutely stultifying. So um, I'm no Maoist, but I think when Chairman Mao said let 100 flowers blossom, he wasn't talking of the British public in, uh, publishing industry, uh, but uh, it's the sentiment I'd like to carry across. Yeah. As for publishers, that's for you to decide. Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. And thank you to London Book Fair for letting us record at the fair. What an incredible moment every year in the bookish calendar. It's an especially good opportunity if you work in the book industry or if you are a student. And so if you are in the London vicinity, maybe we'll see you there in 2020. Thank you to all our wonderful authors for sharing their thoughts on the spreading of stories. And thank you to you for listening. Do follow us at Vintage Books if you want more bookish recommendations. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I've been Lena Norms, and until next time.